0: Okay, so 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 10, Um, let's stand and read together as a church. Daring and self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before God. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong they count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains of blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin enticing unstable souls having a heart trained in greed are cursed children. Forsaking the right way they have gone astray having followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrain the madness of the prophet." Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you and uh, with a message today that is applicable to our church, but ha- currently we're not facing this in our, in, in our midst of Genesis House, but we are facing this issue outside of Genesis House and uh, with fellow Christian brothers and sisters and other churches. and. Uh, but we are not uh, immune from being under this potential threat and even from handling it incorrectly so we want to take these words to our hearts and minds in a serious manner and uh, you uh, remember these appropriately for our future and what is to come for uh, the christian community uh, not only in canada but for us as well so uh, we look forward to our time as we learn from you amen well, I want to welcome all you ladies back who went on the retreat. It's great to see you again because last week was, uh, was just a few of you girls and there's a lot more represented here today. So everything I heard about the retreat, it sounds like you had a wonderful time and Laurel was uh, was right on the ball and right on the money with the Word of God. So I appreciate that. But as you can tell from our reading this morning, we are once again uh, back in the uh, letter of 2 Peter. And we're going to be looking at the characteristics of false teachers that were threatening the church in his day. That's not our first sermon on this topic. Um, we actually looked at some of these uh, uh, characteristics in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And uh, we learned some things about the men. But Peter continues again, uh, verses 10 through 16, uh, continuing with some of these uh, uh, characteristics that these men have. So I want to just jump in here by answering the question. Why did Peter care so much? Why did he care about these false teachers? Well the short answer is Jesus gave him the responsibility protecting his church Remember the conversation he had with him in John chapter 21? It says after Peter is being restored after denying him and they're on the beach and Jesus is resurrected and uh, He asks Peter. Do you love me? And he asks him that three times and every time Peter says, yes, I do. Uh, um, Jesus says, well, I have a job for you. I want you to uh, shepherd my flock or tend my lambs or, you know, or look after my sheep. So Peter was given this responsibility by the Lord to do this. And part of that uh, looking after the sheep was to basically uh, protect it from any uh, error or heresy that came into the church. And that's not only Peter's responsibility, that's our responsibility here as well. The shepherds and leaders and elders of this church are to basically uh, protect from any heresy. Uh, Titus 1.9 says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort his sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So it's the job of Peter and the job of leadership here to do the same. Now the false teachers in Peter's day really had two characteristics going on that you need to protect the church from. And they're both found in 10, verse 10, but 10a. Just, just a couple of sentences before I read this morning. First, uh, the first issue was the promotion of a sensual lifestyle. Notice there he says, uh, the people who indulge in the flesh, in the NASB. So to prom- they wanted to promote a sensual lifestyle, indulging in the flesh and its following its corrupt desires. The second issue these men had were they were super arrogant. They were arrogant. They despised authority, it says in verse 10. So those are the two characteristics that mark these teachers. And Peter in verses 10 through 16 and forward actually starts to flesh those out. He takes the issues of indulging in the flesh and sensuality and despising authority and arrogance and he paints a big picture of what this looked like. And those are our verses today. So let's start first with their arrogance. This is in verse uh, 10b. Daring and self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas the angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Now, we first see the arrogance of these men by the definitions that are used from them. I'm, going to try, I'm not actually going to try to pronounce my Greek words like, like this, because <laughs> I might get into the same trouble as you did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't profess to know Greek either. I thought you were speaking French for a while. <laughs> it was really good. Um, but I don't profess to be any better at Greek than Blake. So, um, but here's what the word means. The word uh, daring means to be bold or presumptuous or audacious. So I looked up the word audacious because I'm not an English major to see what that meant. And uh, in, in the thesaurus, it was interesting. It meant to be overconfident or cheeky. So these men were overconfident and cheeky, all right? Daring. The other word was self-willed, and uh, that means to be stubborn or obstinate, or one who cares about only pleasing himself. Actually, the thesaurus is great again. It actually used the word pig-headed, to be pig-headed. So these men, in their arrogance, were um, uh, audacious, overconfident, and they were pig-headed. These are the kind of guys they were. Now, we've seen this already in evidence in the letter in chapter 2, verse 1, for the lack of regard for authority. Because in two, one they denied the master who bought them. They denied the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we already see that arrogance. But secondly, or actually more importantly here, is uh, how Peter defines arrogance. He actually uses something different here. He actually says, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Angelic majesties for angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So what in the world does this mean? Well, lots of ink has been spelt on this and nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure what this exactly means. People have given their best answers and their best guesses. And so I'm going to present a couple of what I think the main option is as well. But But, but before we get into this, I want to just say clearly that Peter is speaking about the false attitude towards angels. These angelic majesties and these angels who he's speaking about are, of course, angels. These are people that they're reviling or slandering. I believe in verse 10 that he's speaking, uh, the angelic majesties he's speaking about are actually the, the demonic world. They're, they're, they're slandering the demonic world, the fallen angels, whereas in verse 11, the angels he's speaking about there are good angels. God's angels, God's messengers. Now, how I come to this conclusion is actually a parallel passage used in Jude. So, listen to Jude. Yet, in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority. So, same description, the, and they and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the whole the body of Moses, and did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand." The key here is that when he speaks about the false teachers in Jude, reviling angelic majesties, he then says that Michael, the archangel, the good angel, didn't dispute against the devil in this way. So he compares the false teachers going after the demonic world. The demonic world is linked to the devil. You see that? And he's, and he's making a comparison between angelic majesty and the devil. So these false teachers have, are so bold that they'll mock the demonic world, whereas Michael wouldn't even do that. Michael didn't even do that when it came to the devil. He let the Lord deal with the rebuking of him. So Michael didn't dare bring a judgment against them, yet these false teachers have no problem running their mouth off against the demonic world. So we bring this back to Peter now. This makes total sense. These men are somehow mocking and slandering at the demonic world. Whereas angels, God's messengers, who are greater in power, greater in power and might to the demonic world, do not even bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So, what does this still mean? <laughs> well again, we still don't know for sure. But let me give you a quotation from a guy named Richard Bauckham. And I think he actually probably has it right or he's the closest of all the options up there, he's most likely right on par. He says this, In their confidence, the false teachers were condescending or contemptuous of demonic powers. And when rebuked for immoral behavior and warned of the danger of falling into the power of the devil and sharing in his condemnation, they laughed at that very idea. Denying the devil could even have power over them, and speaking of the powers of evil, and skeptical in skeptical and mocking terms, perhaps even denying their existence. That's—I think—that's a very good, a good uh, understanding of what they're probably doing here. They're mocking their, the, the demonic world as if it had any power, influence in their lives, or as if they'd fall into the condemnation of the devil, like he's nothing. He he's got no power over me. So these false teachers were so arrogant and bold that they thought they were even superior and invincible to the power and influence. Of the demonic world. That's how arrogant they had become. Now Peter makes very clear nothing could be farther from the truth. He actually describes them in a very vivid way in verse 12. He says "But these, like unreasoning animals, be born as creatures of instinct to to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. It's ironic that these men would have seen themselves as superior to being angels and being so wise in the understanding of the supernatural world. Yet Peter describes them here as not only having no knowledge, but being like unreasoning animals. Now there's two characteristics of these animals that I want you to notice. He talks about animals being unreasoning, and he also talks about them being creatures of instinct. Now when Peter makes the declaration of their unreasoning, we all know that animals are in fact bad. Animals are not moral beings, they don't make rational decisions, Uh, they don't think long term in terms of how their actions are going to impact others. They're They're not thinking in terms of cause and effect in relationships and how their decisions will ultimately affect their lives. And they have no concern for spiritual things. Now I know this might offend some of you who are dog and horse owners, but uh, that's just the way it goes, unfortunately. We can talk about that more in dialogue. (laughs) But but instead, animals operate by instinct, meaning that the way in which they respond to situations in the world is based on a preset program that God has placed in their DNA. They've been given a preset program like a computer chip, and based on certain stimuli, they have automatic responses to those stimuli. But here's the key with animals and instinct, is they, they go after what they want. They immediately, whatever their flesh wants, they go and get it. And they have no concern for relationships or cause and effect. Because these false teachers were bold and ignorant towards supernatural realities, they had no fear. The result then is they were like animals, operating by instinct. They weren't thinking long-term about decisions they were going to make. Life was determined by going after pleasure indulging in the flesh. That was their key upper, their key operandi. They were just, foot, uh, pleasure was their number one goal. They went off the bench bank, and so they would just revile and make light of supernatural realities. But Peter reminds them and reminds us that this type of thinking and behavior does not go unpunished. See Peter picks up another comparison between animals and false teachers in verses 12 through 13. He uses strong language to define their fate. He's notice there. He says they will be captured and killed. They will be destroyed. They will suffer for the wrong they have done. So, like animals, basically their whole, basically their main purpose in life is just to serve as to live and then die and be basically serve as food, as food source. Um, and be destroyed and ha- and they have no soul, so they won't they don't sort of pass on into heaven. Um, neither will these these uh, these men they will ultimately reach the fate of death spiritual and physical so that's the first issue with these men in terms of defining their despising of authority and uh, this is reflected in their arrogance but peter goes on to define here what their fleshly desires look like and what they entail uh, in verses 13b through 16. And there's four characteristics that mark these men. Four characteristics. The first one is that they have no moral restraint. They have no moral restraint. Look at uh, 13. It says that they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They counted as pleasure to revel in the daytime. I was thinking about this and I think you'll agree with me. Usually people in any culture that indulge in sins really focus their behavior more in the evening. Wouldn't you think that's fair of most cultures? I mean, if you saw someone drunk, like uh, um, staggering down the road on a Friday evening at 10 o'clock downtown, you'd probably accept that as quote unquote normal behavior. They wouldn't shock you, you wouldn't think anything of it. But if you showed up to work, and uh, two of your colleagues were uh, like completely sloshed at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, you'd probably think, man, that guy's got a problem. Right? Or if you see anybody like living out their sins, like, you know, again, in the evenings, Friday, Saturday night, or Thursday evening, again, not that we approve of it, but it's, we're not shocked by it. But if anything happens like major in the mornings or afternoons, we think, man, like this person has to get a life, has to get a job, has to be responsible as a citizen, citizen as a father, as a mother, or whatever, as a friend. So Peter basically says that these false, teacher were, were, false teachers were Tuesday morning kind of people. They had no qualms about pursuing their pleasure 24 hours a day. And Peter points out just how far these men have actually gone. You know what's interesting about Israel? When when Israel was threatened with Babylonian captivity, one of the pronouncements of God against them in judgment was found in Isaiah 5.11. He accused them of not only getting drunk in the evening, but in the morning as well. Isaiah 5.11. These guys had no moral restraint, and neither did Israel, and that's why they're taken into captivity. Second issue, besides having no moral restraint, was there a was desire to deceive and corrupt the Christian community? Their desire to deceive and corrupt the Christian community. Look at uh, uh, the next verse or next sentence. They are stains of blemishes, reviling in the deceptions, as they carouse with you. As they carouse with you. Now, we noticed this in the previous sermon, that these false teachers don't operate outside the church. They like to operate inside the church. He says, with you. They want to carouse with you. But what's even more interesting, I think, is the word kraus. Do some of your translations have eating meals there? Or, or feasts? Yeah? Feasts and eating meals? Okay, that's an accurate translation as well. Because they, they want to be uh, showing their of deception while they're eating meals with you or participating in feasts. Now why I think that's significant is that the same word is used in Jude describing the same men in terms of the love feast. Do you know what the love feasts represent in, in the Bible, in the New Testament? In 1 Corinthians 11, the love feasts are associated with communion services. When every time the New Testament church took communion, they had meals together. And these were the feasts that they would have. And remember the problems in the Corinthian church that Paul had to deal with. So this is what actually Peter's referring to. Then these men were indulging in their sinful pleasures and teaching others to do the same while remembering the Lord's death. But why that's so important is remember what the Christians were saved out of. They were saved out of pagan, uh, cult, uh, pagan worship. And what did pagan worship entailed. You'd go to the temple, you'd worship your gods and you'd eat meals there. And you'd sacrifice animals and have your food there and indulge in these meals. So pagan culture had meals, had sacrifices to sacrifices the gods. And then, but what accompanied that was always sexual immorality. The temple prostitutes and so on and so forth. Again, Paul had to deal with that in Corinth. These Christians were still going there, and participating in meals at the temple and causing problems, and jumping into immorality at the same time. The Christian love feasts were markedly different. They focused on dealing with one another's needs, from loving one another within the community, and they had us, they were sober, they were, and they were moral people in those banquets, and they fully remembered the Lord's death and knew exactly what the meals represented in the communion. These men are coming in and reintroducing pagan culture back into their love feasts. It's okay to be sexually immoral and to do these things, and they're promoting it. And what I like here, he says, is they they come in with their deceptions. So they're pitching it in a way that uh, that, uh, is deceiving. That it's okay to do these things as a Christian, and you'll be okay with God. This is how twisted these men have become. And they're deceiving people by trying to lure them back into an old way of life. The third quality of these men is they entice spiritually immature believers to sin. They entice the spiritually immature believers to sin. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Enticing unstable souls. To entice somebody means that your message has to be attractive and persuasive. I can't entice you to do anything unless my message is attractive to you or you think it's persuasive and good for you. I mean, that's, what, that's why Satan's temptation to be was so, was so good for her. He promised her knowledge equivalent to God. The only reason why she, she bought the deception when it was enticed, because that was a great, a great option. It was attractive to have the knowledge of God. Wow, I, I as a created being can be like God. And so it was, it was easy for her to fall into deception. Well, we know that the the the, uh, the message here of the false teachers was attractive. Their message is one with eyes full of adultery, eyes full of adultery. Now, I don't think Jesus is or uh, Jesus, Peter is just speaking about men breaking the commandment that Jesus gave in Matthew five. Whoever lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. I, I believe that that's true. That would have included that, but I don't think he's using adultery in terms of that alone. I think adultery is best explained by James 3 and, uh, James chapter 4. He says, You ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Notice there's no sexual sin listed in this adulterous behavior. How are you an adulteress in this passage if you want to spend it on your pleasures going after indulging in the flesh and you want to basically have one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have one foot in a banana peel and one foot in a grave and you're just ready to do the splits. Right? So you're just, this is exactly what it is to be an adulteress, is to be married to God and to be married to the world. So these men... Have an attractive message. You can be a Christian and still function in the world and be okay with the Lord That's a very enticing message and we all know how, uh, how that can be attractive to us as well So adultery here but they the preach the message of preaching is where pleasure rules Pleasure rules and you can go after it with no consequence Now who is likely to fall for this message? Be unstable souls, Peter says. So who are those today? Well, Peter doesn't define the unstable souls. He doesn't define them. The word just means to be unsteady or to not be on firm ground. But I'm going to make some suggestions and you can jump on these in, in dialogue or push back, whatever you like. But I'm going to make some suggestions of who are unstable uh, because they're not defined. But I would say the youth, the youth are unstable. They grow up with, under their parents' faith. And they've watched mom and dad go to church. And they've watched mom and dad commit their lives to Jesus Christ. But as they grow older, they, they start to make their own decisions. And they start to look for a way of life that's right for them. They're attracted to different mentors, different speeches, different people. And they're looking for someone to take an interest in them. They're looking to set the blaze their own path of being into adulthood. Well, if a person comes in like this and... Preaches a message like this, man. That's attractive because mom and dad no longer have any really. I mean, you can they can advise you, but really you're on your own now. You're a late teenager. You're in your early 20s, and uh, you have to make life your own. If you if you you know if their message is attractive and you like the version of Christianity, it's easy to fall into their traps. I suggest new converts to Christ. New converts, and I can actually support this one with scripture. You know that uh, warning, when you when uh, Paul told Timothy, whenever you point to an elder in the church, do not make it a new convert. Why? Because that person can easily fall into the snare of the devil. Why? A young convert gets promoted into eldership and it goes to his head. Oh, look at me, I've been a Christian for one year and the church already thinks I'm awesome and I can lead this congregation. Next thing you know, you, you fall into all sorts of crazy... Uh, temptations and all sorts of crazy ideas about who you are and, and what you can do and all this type of stuff. So, eldership, you cannot be a new convert to Jesus Christ. There has to be a track record of proven faithfulness. Well, a new convert is easy, then, to be uh, influenced. I'm not denying a new convert's dedication to the Lord. I'm not denying that. But it's easy as a new convert to be deceived because you just let everything you hear that's spiritual in the Christian world seems like truth. And so you need good teaching and good people around you and, and a solid understanding of the Bible to, to be able to work through these things. The third category I'd give is the believers. People who have been Christians for a long time but have made no personal investment to grow in the Lord. People who have been Christians for a long time but make no personal investment to grow in the Lord. They, they hardly read their Bible, they hardly study, they hardly pray. You can be susceptible because there's no growth happening. That's the Hebrews Christians. Pe- um, if Paul wrote it, he said to the Hebrews, you know, you guys should be eating meat by now, but you're still drinking milk. From his perspective, the Christians for so long that they, they needed, they should be a meat eaters, but they're still nursing on milk. Now, I, have, I know a person like this. Uh, this happened to me about four years ago. I've shared this story once before, but sometimes repetition is key. Um, A person I knew well, that that was in my life uh, who had a genuine faith, like I never saw this woman waver in any way in terms of like maybe her commitments to Jesus Christ. She she was a a strong evangelist too at work and different things. One day she was excited about a new teacher she discovered through her brother. She phones me and goes, Andrew, I found this amazing teacher and I've been listening to him regularly. And I said, who is it? She goes, Joel Osteen. And I said, uh, I won't mention her name. (laughs) some of you know her I said "Uh, actually that's not a good idea and I walked through the teaching now here's what's interesting about her she's she's committed evangelist but she wasn't much of a Bible scholar and she didn't really ever spend time in those ways she just sort of had a basic faith and and just was really committed to that basic faith she was in because Joel is so smooth and deceiving and enticing she had no idea that he was speaking speaking heresy now, kudos to her, and, and this is shows her maturity though, is that she, with my, uh, my, uh, my words of encouragement to her and my warnings to her, she actually walked away from them completely. She says, thank you for telling me, and she ditched them. But here's the thing, if I wasn't in her life or someone else that was a, a more, more mature Christian, she would have fallen prey to him, and who knows where she'd be at today in terms of believing things and then teaching others the same, uh, the same principles. All right, so what's the fourth category, the final category for these men? We pick this up here at the end of the verse in 14. It says they have a having a heart-trained in greed. So these men, their purpose behind their ministry is purely monetary. Their purpose is purely monetary. Let's read the entire account um, because, um, well actually I won't read it, read it yet. But that's their, their motivation is a heart-trained in greed. You know what the word for trained is? It's a very interesting word. In Greek, it's the word we get the word gymnasium from. So when we go to the gymnasium to, for school, at, uh, in grade 5 or 6 or 3, whatever, to do sports, that's the word trained. Or if we go to the gym, that's the word trained. So it's a word used to describe an athlete who exercises or trains themselves for a sport. Which, of course, we know takes discipline, dedication and time. Well, this is the term that Peter applies to these false teachers. So if they're trained in greed, that means that they've actually thought these things out. They've had to put time and dedication and discipline into how they're going to get money, and how they're going to be deceiving, and how they're going to come up with their quasi-schemes and all sorts of things like that. So this is not haphazard. These men have put time and energy. It's not a fleeting thought. They're thinking about how can we make money off of these people. They're trained. They're, they go to the gym for this type of thing. So Peter uses an example, an Old Testament example. He says, "In verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, they having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received the rebuke from his own transgression, from a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet." Uh, Balaam appears in the scene as the Israelites were camped on the plains of Moab as they're about to enter the promised land uh, The Moabite king Balak knew of Israel's reputation and how they destroyed his neighboring kings So Balak who's the king of Moab hires Balaam to curse Israel so they won't succeed in taking him out But here's what's important Church Balaam was known as a true prophet He wasn't known as a false prophet He was known as a true prophet. In verse 6 of Numbers chapter 22, he says this, for I know that, this is Balak speaking, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So remember the mark of a true prophet, 100% of the time things have to come true. He says, I know that you have a reputation that when you bless someone, it comes true. And when you curse someone, it comes true. And God actually speaks to him and and communicates with this guy repeatedly through these chapters, Numbers 22-24. So this guy had a legitimate ministry. A legitimate ministry. But in Numbers 22, verse 7, the king sent elders to Balaam with fees to hire him. And you know the rest of the story. Balaam heads off to Moab, but along the way something dramatic happens. A donkey... Right, in these writings gets stopped in his tracks by the angel of the Lord. And those of you in men's Bible study know who that is. <laughs> At least you think we do. Uh, um, so the donkey tries to turn around after seeing the angel of the Lord, and Balaam beats the donkey to get him to go forward. And the donkey speaks to him. And then Balaam and then Balaam finally has his eyes open and he sees the angel of the Lord and understands why the donkey was stopped in his tracks. And then he realizes his sin. He realizes his sin. Because he's heading to Moab to uh, to uh, go and um, talk to the king. And he's not like retreating from this. And he's, and uh, and uh, the Lord's trying to stop him from going to Moab. So if God had not intervened on Israel's behalf, Balaam would have willfully sinned for his own material profit. And he's saying, this is what the teachers are like, this is what Peter's saying The false teachers are like. These men, these men will willfully sin for material profit. So what are we to learn from this today? Well, this is important because we don't actually know for sure who these people were. Notice that Peter never defines these men. like He doesn't give them a title like... Uh, they, they're the prosperity gospel people, or they're the Mormons. He doesn't say title. I think that's important because if, if he did give them titles, then you and I would probably close our ears when we heard other false teachers because we're like, oh, they're not the people of Peter's day, so we don't have to worry about that. But the Bible never labels the people's heresy in terms of a category. Instead, the Bible gives a working understanding of the spirit of heresy. Understand the difference? He never labels the heresy. He helps you understand the spirit of heresy. So that when you hear false teachers today, they can incorporate some of these different things uh, in, the, in their teaching. You don't have to line up exactly with these men. But if you, have, if you share commonalities with these men, then you know you're in danger listening to them. And, and they're in dangerous ground. And you remove them from your church and from your listening ears. So I want to give you the portrait of a false teacher based on the spirit of heresy that people can inherit today. This is, this is the truth about some of the guys you'll encounter today. One, uh, they will mock supernatural realities. They will mock supernatural realities. If Bauckham is right, and I, I think he probably is, it means that they, they, they basically slander and laugh at the idea that the devil and his demon demonic world have any power and influence in this world over any part of your life. You minimize the devil and his effect. And uh, you basically think I'm superior to him. There is no such thing as a devil anyway, right? It's to to mock that he could have any influence or power in someone's life. Another area um, is that they contaminate the flock of God. They contaminate the flock of God. We saw that already. They want to carouse with you. They love to be amongst God's people. They use deception and they entice. That's the way they try to infiltrate the church. And it's always uh, some kind of self-indulgence and pleasure. It it, it could be power, it could be greed, it could be fame, it could be uh, sexual morality, it could be anything. It it, it doesn't have to just be sexual things. But it's just anything that the flesh wants, you go after it and God doesn't care about that. He'll never judge you for those things. Which makes sense, if you don't believe in the power of the demonic and those things, you're going to already explain that way anyway. Another portion of a false teacher is their primary concern is their monetary gain. They have no care for your spiritual concern, for your growth. They have, they have no care for that. All they care about is that you, they get rich off of you. Second lesson, I think it's an important one. I could probably just end a sermon there, but I thought this was, this one that stood out for me. I don't know if it stood out for you. But if a believer stays in a state of spiritual maturity, they can easily fall prey to false teaching. Right? Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, they entice unstable souls. And if I have the categories right, you know, and there might be more, but if I'm onto something with youth and new converts and people who aren't growing even to be Christians a long time, then this is an important lesson. Because false teaching can easily creep in. Hence the issue with my friend. Who couldn't recognize uh, false teaching when she heard it. So may this be an encouragement to you. To, uh, to continue to pursue through reading your scriptures. Through prayer. Uh, listening to uh, wise teachers who you trust. Uh, who have a proven track record of strong Christian maturity. Just to continue to grow in your faith. Never, never stop growing to pursuing the Lord.